Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. PSPS listeners, this is Dr. Daniel Orlovich. So happy today to be joined by Dr. Brittany Grovey, as well as Dr. Jamel Lee. Very interesting podcast today. They will go ahead and tell us a little bit about three segments. We'll jump right in. They are husband and wife. How did you guys meet and what's it like working together? Well, Jamel and I met right before we officially started med school at UC San Francisco during a kind of meet your classmates icebreaker camping trip. We became close friends really early on and you know, as the rest, as they say, is history. I actually remember studying with him for our first medical school test. And then we fast forward to now, not much has changed. We're still studying together. I'm only now in addition to studying to advance our knowledge and craft. We're studying things like business, marketing, employee development, leadership, things of that nature. So we've essentially grown up in medicine together. So working together is our normal and we have a lot of fun doing it. Nice. And tell the listeners a little bit, tell us about your kind of setup, your practice, just so they can kind of get up to speed with you both. Yeah, sure. So our setup and practice, it's a private practice in San Diego. We've been open for about two and a half years or so. We finished fellowship in 2017. We did a year of private practice kind of locally decided for philosophical reasons to kind of start our own. And our setup is we have our in-office procedure suite. So we do, you know, all the bread and butter procedures, ultrasound, you know, most of the interventions. We do take some implants and things like that to the surgery center. But kind of our setup was designed trying to create a new model or a unique model that we were kind of dreaming about for, for, for pain management. And so I think previously with the previous practice we were with, Brittany was working at, or Dr. Grovey was working at kind of the main office. And then they decided to set up, kind of get a second office established. And I was, I was there at the second office with the staff of my own. And we were trying to figure out how to create this nice kind of warming environment. And so we kind of, Brittany and I talked about our UCSF education and kind of how that created this nice kind of social awareness, social dynamic. And so we tried to establish that with the with the staff that we had at the other office. And it ended up being working very well. And so we had patients who would kind of just stop by. <laughs> they were just, you know, stop by, say they were in the area, kind of stop by, chat with us, talk to the team, talk to the staff, and kind of created a little bit more of a not necessarily like a cold office, but an office where patients felt that we not only took care of their pain, but we we also addressed them and treated them like people. And so that's essentially the the, the practice that we tried to set up here. And so we were really kind of looking at things to create a nice positive patient experience, looking at, you know, marketing, trying to have a nice kind of open uh, floor space, lots of windows, lots of bright lights, and really trying to kind of create a, a workplace that's going to be good for the patients. And we thought, and that will translate to, you know, a positive experience for us and a positive experience for the staff as well. And so I would say our practice is at the moment is pretty small. It's Dr. Grovey and myself. We do have four other employees. And as I mentioned, we do all the bread and butter procedures. And thankfully, I think our motto for the first year was a just keep the lights on. And we were able to succeed and do that. COVID kind of did throw a little wrench in it, but we've been growing and kind of changing uh, directions a little bit. And at the point now where, you know, things have been pretty solid and we're looking for expansion. 
And so that was kind of a long-winded answer, but I would say our, our practice model here is kind of a smaller type practice. We do all the interventions, bread and butter procedures, and we try to create a nice, positive patient atmosphere, positive experience that creates a energizing, fulfilling, and, and positive workplace for us, our staff, and a positive, rejuvenating place for the patients. Nice. Lovely. How is it? I get the open floor plan. I get the people you know, being treated like people, which is great. How is it working together? 40 plus hours a week and then going home and seeing each other as well. How's that dynamic? <laughs> we, get, we actually get asked that question quite frequently. Like I was saying, we've, we've grown up in medicine together, so it, it's kind of our normal. It's great. We come home from work and talk about patients. I know some people may not find that that exciting, but we're really interested and passionate about what we do. And so it's like we have case conferences and M&Ms you know, every night. So I really feel like we get to learn a lot from each other. It's helpful because especially in private practice, I would imagine it could feel pretty isolating. And so with us, it's very nice to have that already built in network. So we have a layer of support and can learn from each other's cases and successes. But that's something that I would I would definitely miss if I didn't have him as my partner, because I'd have to go out and, and search for that network and find that network. So it was already built in. So that was really nice. It also, I think, gives us an added layer of security when we were starting our practice to have have both of us involved because we were able to, like I started out doing a little anesthesia for a couple of months to start off. And so, you know, just making sure that, you know, we had a backup plan gives us that kind of comfort and security when we're, you know, jumping off this cliff and deciding to, to start our own practice. And so that, that was really helpful as well. Yeah, I think it's been helpful as well. <laughs> I think it may depend on who you ask, if you ask us and the staff. <laughs> but I think overall, <laughs> we have, you know, a nice positive environment. As Brittany said, you know, we've been working together ever since kind of before we took our first test in medical school. So it's great to have someone we can bounce ideas off of. It's also, you know, beneficial since we, we went to medical school together, internship together, residency together, fellowship together. So it's kind of like it's kind of helpful to have another brain that thinks the same way that we do. So when I'm most likely going to forget something, Brittany can gently remind me and nudge me. Hey, yeah, we did learn about that in, in internship, residency, fellowship. And that kind of helps for kind of preparing for more challenging procedures or also dealing with some uh, challenging cases or, or, or challenging uh, medical conditions that we may not have seen for a while to kind of have that extra brain who's kind of been trained in a similar way that, that we have to kind of help cover the bases. Yeah, definitely. Like you're saying, you can kind of bounce ideas off one another. You can talk about those challenging cases you brought up. And I just said the word, the challenging aspects of you know, building your own practice. You're two and a half years in, you're looking to grow, you got four staff members, you know, things are going well. Walk us through a little bit of the challenges you both have faced and kind of what recommendations or what insight you can share with the listeners out there. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> nice question. I think that there are lots of different challenges for us. That is, you know, whenever we're transitioning from kind of one area to, to another, it's always a little bit of a uncertainty. I think the challenges for us were, you know, the same pretty, I wouldn't say standard, but are, you know, the challenges going from training in medical education for a set period of time, right? We did medical school, we did internship, we did residency, we did fellowship. So our focus was understanding clinical science, understanding our procedures, understanding our craft. And we didn't have nearly as much focus on understanding business or marketing or, you know, how to, you know, maximize our, our square footage or floor space and kind of transitioning from having the mindset from mostly clinical mindset to now a more business mindset was somewhat of a challenge. 
I think our initial kind of foray into that, though, was kind of during our wedding. Brittany and I kind of have a very DIY or do-it-yourself attitude. And so when we were fellows, or actually before fellowship and residency, we were planning for our wedding and we were realizing that, you know, these wedding costs can get pretty expensive. And, you know, I have a big family. I have a lot of cousins. And my mom was like, yeah, we want some XYZ cousin from across the country to come, you know, check out the wedding. They haven't seen you for years. And we're like, yeah, sounds great. Until we started looking at how much those wedding plates cost. (laughs) And at that point, it was like, wait a second, how can we accomplish the goal of, you know, having a nice wedding where families can have a good time, we can give them some good food, but at the same time, stay within our very, very modest and meager residency budget. So we were pretty broke during residency. And so we had to try to figure out how we can navigate or accommodate, you know, this large family on such tight finances. And so we decided to kind of be creative. We looked at different Airbnb options. Instead of renting a venue for a short period of time, we decided to kind of rent an Airbnb and have a the wedding there. We thought that was a significant way to increase costs, plus kind of take off some travel load for the family members. In addition, we decided to, instead of catering, we went over to Costco and bought a whole bunch of, you know, brisket, some couple of racks of lamb, some chicken, and started having a good old barbecue. <laughs> and so we kind of catered our own wedding and kind of find unique ways that we can accomplish the goal of having a great time with the family, enjoying food and, and listening to some good music without, you know, breaking our financial budget. And so I would say that was kind of our initial test of having to figure out how to manage finances to accomplish a goal. And so when it was time for us to transition from being employers to employees, we kind of reverted back to that a little bit. I think, you know, the major challenge that we had was a couple of major challenges were, you know, creating a vision for our practice and developing a plan of who we wanted to be, kind of seeing what our practice, how we envision our practice five, 10 years down the line, and then trying to develop a plan that can help us execute that vision. I think another challenge was how were we going to translate our clinical training into a financially stable practice in a competitive market? I think the initial question or or challenge of understanding who we were and wanted to be, we literally kind of took time, sat down with each other and envisioned the type of practice we wanted. We wrote down our mission statement, kind of come up with an ideal practice of how we wanted to practice the patients we wanted to see. And then tried to have the goal of creating that positive experience that we previously had when we set up the practice for our previous employer. And so we really kind of went out and started looking at different locations. And I think the major aspect of us was how could we create this positive, you know, patient experience. And so open floor plan, bright windows, you know, friendly environment, nice kind of peaceful colors were something that was very important to us. And so we looked at a whole bunch of different properties, a lot of grassroots. We would Google a different area, send out mass emails and literally just drive around the city and look at a bunch of different properties. And fortunately, we were able to find a pretty good office space, which is within a different office building that has radiology, has orthopedic surgery, has plastic surgery and dentistry, physical therapy, kind of all within one center. So that was able to add a a little bit extra layer of support. But kind of having that forethought to try to, you know, find a location that's going to hopefully help with support, potentially even referral networks, I think was looking back and it was a pretty strong decision that kind of helped us navigate that a little bit. I imagine that being at a different location where we didn't have so many ancillary services on site to kind of help support us may have been a little bit more more challenging for us to kind of navigate that. But thankfully, you know, that challenge of trying to find a space we were pretty used to, you know, taking things on and doing it ourselves. And we're hopefully, we're thankfully pretty successful with that. I think the other challenges that we wanted to have was, you know, how are we going to translate our clinical training into a financially stable practice in a competitive market? 
San Diego is competitive. There's lots of pain doctors in the area. We had this dream of a perfect practice with lovely patients who were, you know, all about procedures and aqua therapy and multimodal pain management. <laughs> but the reality of the case was that there are many pain doctors in San Diego who most likely have already, you know, created their 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 practices with those lovely patients as well. And by the time we typically see a pain patient, they've, you know, sometimes have seen two, three, even four or five different pain providers in the area. And so we had to try to figure out how could we you know, still continue to treat these C patients who have been, I want to say been around the block, but C patients who've seen, you know, different providers, different pain specialists and offer a service or offer a customer service that was, that was unique and positive for them. I think another issue was trying to kind of carve out our niche. As mentioned earlier, there's a lot of pain doctors in San Diego. There's a lot of people that do spinal cord stimulation. There's already established referral networks. They've been referring to each other for years. And so, you know, how are we going to enter into that into that scene without disrupting those referral networks. And so our goal was, you know, play well in the sandbox. We didn't want to disrupt any current referral networks that were there. Instead, we wanted to add to them. We tried to emphasize that we wanted to collaborate. If they already had a spinal cord stimulation person, fantastic. You know, they can maintain that, but there may be other modalities or other interventions that we could provide that may be able to help their patients as well. And so our niche that we were looking at, you know, we were interventional trained, but we also were anesthesiologists. And so we felt pretty comfortable doing regional ultrasound. During our fellowship, we had some ultrasound experience with ultrasound guided injections in the head and neck and felt comfortable doing those as well. And then during the, our year between fellowship and starting our own practice, we collaborated with the MSK sonographer, who was a local guy who, you know, we do diagnostic ultrasound exams and we shadowed him so that we can get a little bit better understanding of what else we were looking in you know, at the picture and have a clear understanding of anatomy. And I think by kind of doing that for a year on top of our anesthesia and fellowship training, we felt pretty comfortable with the ultrasound and thought that one might be a way that we can add another service to pre-existing established networks. And so we think we may have had a little bit of success with that, kind of talking to a couple of neurosurgeons who said, yeah, we already have a, a guy for our spinal cord stimulation. It's no problem. They did ask if we could do cervical transferaminals. We told them, you know, we don't weren't trained on that. But with our ultrasound, you know, we can offer a cervical selective nerve root blocks. We can offer, you know, ultrasound guided injections for brachial plexus injuries and, and things like that. And the surgeons for, were, were pretty amenable to that. And they sent us a couple of patients. We did well with them. And, and we've established a network that, that was collaborative, that preserved a pre-existing network. And so that was kind of an interesting challenge is how do we cover our, our niche while respecting other networks, but at the same time offer a service that could be beneficial to their patients. I love it. I love it. Quick question, Dr. Lee or Dr. Grovey can answer. I love where you with the wedding as well, kind of, you know, getting the Airbnb, getting your own food from Costco. It seems like you guys have a vision and then you say, how do we accomplish that vision in a creative, innovative way? The vision of having, you know, the open floor plan, having the lots of light coming in, the welcoming colors, that's a broader vision, like you're saying, for patient experience. Where did you guys get that idea from? Was it during training up at UCSF? Was it during fellowship? Was it something outside of medicine? Because I think that's really unique. And I think ultimately patients will flock to that type of service. Uh, yeah, it's a combination of random experiences. I would say the first experience probably came from, I, I used to watch Scrubs. It's a sitcom from probably 10 years ago. And there's a character in the sitcom named Dr. Kelso. And he's the chief of, or chair, I think he's the chief of medicine. He's kind of a grumpy person, kind of mean, plays a lot of jokes on the staff there. And there's another character, the janitor. The janitor is also kind of a mean person. He picks on the protagonist, JD. 
Anyways, the janitor is kind of mean. So Dr. Kelso played a game on a janitor where he changed his scrub color. And so he took a scrub color from, I think it was dark blue, navy blue, and he changed the scrub colors to being robin's egg blue. And the janitor lost some of his meanness, meaning that patients and staff members were looking at the janitor. And instead of looking at the janitor and being fearful or being, you know, thinking that the janitor was going to be mean, they started being nice to the janitor. And the janitor got really mad. Like, why are people being nice to me? And Dr. Kelso told him that robin's egg, robin's egg blue, the color of the scrubs, creates a nice kind of calming feel for the patients. And so that was kind of the first thing that, that pointed our eyes to it. And then when I was in college, I took a, a class called Mind Control. And it was focusing on marketing and advertising, particularly on, on commercials. And so trying to pick from you know a couple of different experiences that we had to apply those to our practice. And I think another thing that came into play was looking at kind of the iPhone and the text and the different colors that Apple uses to market to patients and the rounded fonts. And so we just tried to kind of be plugged into the things that were influencing us and creating a certain calming environment for us and then trying to reproduce that and create that for the patients. And in addition, and one of the things from how UCSD our attendings used to tell us all the time is patient experience is incredibly important. When you're talking to patients about potential interventions and you want patient buy-in, if the patient goes into the injection fearful or thinking that it's not going to work, then there's a high, higher likelihood of it not working. So in fellowship, um, we were definitely taught that there's a kind of psychological component to treating pain as well. And we really wanted to make sure that we, we tapped into that and kind of use that to our advantage as well. Nice. And then another thing you brought up during the challenges bit was playing nice in the sandbox, not disrupting the referral pattern. I think that's really interesting, the ultrasound you know, guided techniques as well. Walk me through, how did patients receive that and how did other physicians receive that as well? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think other physicians, I think, received it pretty well. I think pain management classically kind of gets a reputation of being predominantly medication management, or nowadays, I think it's, you know, spinal cord stimulation, advanced spine procedures. And so when we would meet with neurosurgical groups, orthopedic surgery groups, they would say, hey, you know, there's a lot of pain doctors in the area. We don't necessarily want to refer our patients out and have them come back with a spinal cord stimulator. And so what we were trying to establish was that with the ultrasound, spinal cord stimulator, I think, is great for the right indications and the right subset of patients, but there are peripheral nerves that can contribute to their pain as well. And so I think the way that we tried to play it is that, you know, with the ultrasound, it can be a helpful modality to help us. We may not be able to identify the source of the pain, but if we can find the nerve that the pain is traveling, we may be able to intervene on that nerve to hopefully interrupt that pain signal and improve the patient's physical function and experience. I think that the neurosurgeons specifically were, I think, interested in our ability to provide selective nerve root blocks in the lower cervical region, and then to provide, a, I think, more advanced kind of ultrasound-guided injections, suprascapular nerve blocks, dorsoscapular nerve blocks, and things like that. We also have some hand surgeons, some orthopedic surgeons who are interested in kind of the idea of peripheral nerve stimulation for pain in the upper extremity. I think that they were probably used to a little bit more spinal cord stimulation for that, and we felt that you know doing ultrasound and having that ability to provide peripheral nerve stimulation may be kind of a less invasive modality treatment that may be helpful for the patient. There's also a bunch of different devices for peripheral nerve stimulation where I think the where spinal cord stimulation, you know, we're placing that device, most likely it's going to be permanent. You know, we're going to go into spinal cord and some patients are going to be amenable to that. Some patients, you know, are going to be a little bit hesitant to that. I think when dealing with peripheral nerve stimulation, it tends to be a little less invasive. And for some of the temporary devices, I think patients can you know, kind of get their feet wet with them a little bit and then decide kind of where they want to go forward with that. 
a story that comes to play is we had a patient who was sent to us from this neurosurgical group. He had a surgery from a C3 to C7. He had persistent periscapular shoulder pain and degeneration and stenosis around the C5, 6, and 7 nerve roots. And he wasn't really getting better with epidurals and classic treatments. Given his surgery, they didn't necessarily want to do a spinal cord stimulator for him. And he was being seen by other pain doctors in the area. And unfortunately, you know, they kind of given up once he failed the, you know, conventional treatments, the epidurals, medial branch blocks, radio frequency ablation, and he wasn't interested in spinal cord stimulation. So we actually saw him. We were behind. Actually, this day I was struggling with the procedure and I was probably running half an hour behind. And so he came in and he was a little disgruntled and that we were behind. And then Dr. Grovey had to go save the day and kind of track him down in, in the parking lot. But ultimately, we got him back. We did a super scapular nerve block for him. He was happy with the pain relief. After that, we did a trial and then we placed the Sprint SPR system. This is a temporary one. And this, this is a gentleman who's had multiple injections. He, you know, told me, I don't want any more surgery. I don't want any more injections. And once we did that nerve block, he, he kind of warmed up a little bit. And then we kind of settled on the Sprint system because it was, you know, temporary, wasn't permanent. And we put that Sprint system in and he felt a lot better. I mean, he came back telling us he had no pain. He's doing shoulder dances in the lobby. You know, wow. he's a happy guy, right? He was disgruntled and kind of grumpy. And now he's like nice. telling jokes with the, with, with the staff and the team. And then he comes back and says, can we do this from my back, right? And so here's a patient where neurosurgery sent them to us for, you know, a suprascapular nerve block, potential consideration for peripheral nerve stimulation. We'd worked with him, tried some minimally invasive things, kind of got his body, got him kind of warmed up to it a little bit. And now he's, you know, all about interventions, looking for what other things that we can do for his low back using, you know, neuromodulation. And I think patients are generally pretty receptive to ultrasound and ultrasound guided interventions. A lot of times when they come to us, it may be something that they haven't really experienced before. And it's a great modality to really teach the patients. They get to see it on the screen. So it's kind of interactive with them about where their pathology is coming from and helps them understand sometimes why they're feeling what they're feeling. And so we use it as a tool for education as well. And patients have been very receptive to it in general. I think it, it kind of builds to that positive experience. It's, as Dr. Grovey said, it's interactive. So even if we don't do an injection, we do an ultrasound for some, we do some diagnostic ultrasound exams. And so by doing that exam, we can educate the patient. We can work with them. They get to see what's in their own body and kind of builds a little bit of rapport, builds a little bit of trust between us and them. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Switching gears, Dr. Grovey, tell me, we talked kind of about you guys meeting, going through the intern year, the med school and everything like that and practice together. We talked a little bit about kind of the growing the challenges, growing the practice as well. I'd like to switch to the third part of the segment, and that is what have been the most rewarding aspects of transitioning to the business ownership side of this? Yeah, well, I would say that being able to have such an active role in developing the kind of culture of the practice has been some of the most rewarding. You know, we have, when we started out, we had a very specific, you know, philosophy and vision of what we wanted our practice to be. And being business owners and really having that seat at the table allowed us to be able to dictate the direction that our practice went. And so actually taking the idea from a thought and a dream to now seeing it in fruition and having patients, you know, comment on reviews online and highlight exactly what our vision was has been incredibly, incredibly rewarding. We have, you know, we're, we're very patient-centered here, and we always wanted to contribute to the community in some way, even when we were, you know, in med school and anesthesia, and we didn't quite understand, you know, or know exactly how we were going to go about that. But pain management has really given us, allowed us the opportunity to 
give back to our patients, give back to the community in a way that we may not have anticipated previously. And then with being business owners and being able to make the decisions, you know, we're able to do kind of outreach and bring things to the clinic that if we weren't making the decisions, maybe a little more challenging. One story that comes to mind is one of our patients, she has a granddaughter and her granddaughter is about, oh, she's about five, six, six, six. six. Yeah. Yeah. So she's about six. She's decided now that she would like to be a doctor. And so she comes to her office visits with her grandma and, you know, when we do ultrasound, she's looking at the screen and she's just really interested. And so we want to help, you know, kind of inspire her in, in that sense. And so our clinic, like we were saying, is, is really very, very much community. So she feels very at home here with the staff and in the clinic. And so there was, there was a day where her grandmother asked if she could come in and kind of could shout, shadow us for a little while because she'd been interested in being a doctor. And so, you know, we bring her in and we get her a stethoscope. We have our, we know we ask our patients if they're okay with the doctor in training to come in and, and, you know, take their blood pressure and things like that. And so, you know, she got to come in and for a day be able to kind of shadow us in clinic and, you know, hit the button to take blood pressure for patients and really get to see what it was like. And just, you know, being able to do that for our patients in a clinic has been incredibly rewarding. She's a great patient and the little, her granddaughter is also very sweet as well. And a little bit to that story was that she was actually starting first grade and they were going around and they were asking everybody who they wanted to be or what they wanted to be when they grew up. And she said that she wanted to be a doctor. And I believe there are a couple of kids in the class said that she couldn't be a doctor for one reason or another. And so, and and I believe that the teacher may have commented as well. And that was kind of what was our patient's impetus to say, hey, you know, she had this experience. She wants to be a doctor. And she came home crying because the kids at school said that she couldn't be a doctor. And so we were like, all right, well, we'll have, <laughs> we can't say her name on, 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 on yeah, the yeah. podcast, but we'll say, you know, we'll, we'll have a Dave just so she can be a doctor. So we gave yeah. her a white coat, a stethoscope, <laughs> and she was running around the, the clinic and the patients loved it exactly as Dr. Groby said. And it's really great to, you know, to have a practice, but, you know, there's multiple different ways where we can, you know, address a lot of what's going on that may not necessarily be through our direct patient care. And I think having the business ownership kind of gives us a little bit more flexibility and kind of helps us have a seat at the table so where we can advocate a little bit more for things that make us a little bit more, that make us, that we're passionate about. Yeah, I think in addition, we also get to determine what kind of, what therapies we bring into the clinic and make those decisions relatively quickly. So earlier, Dr. Lee was talking about his patient where he put the SPR device in. I mean, you know, if we see something online and we're interested, we can call, reach out to the rep, have them come in and, and implement it. And there's not really a whole lot of red tape to go around. And so it also allows us to move quickly and try to stay on the forefront of interventional pain medicine. Nice. Got a lot of flexibility. With the five or six-year-old granddaughter, did you let her drive the needle at all? Oh, no. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Our patients probably would have totally let her. Yeah. <laughs> Our patients are super cool. <laughs> but, but, yeah, excellent. She, she got to hold the probe. <laughs> yeah, there you go. She got to write appointment cards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's too cute. For the listeners out there, Dr. Rivlin, Dr. Lee, that's very inspiring. Any words of wisdom you have for the residents out there, the fellows out there, the people who, like that five or six-year-old granddaughter who's considering kind of going into medicine or considering the pain medicine space or even the newer attendings out there, any words of wisdom, anything you'd like to share with them? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think words of wisdom for us is definitely keep learning network and kind of try to make things better. There's a, a musical artist from Los Angeles, close to the area where I grew up. His name is Nipsey Hussle. 
And in one of his songs, he has a line that says, you can have it all. It's all about your reason. And that's kind of what has somewhat kind of inspired us to kind of align, come up with the mission statement that is, you know, about providing not just a good practice for ourselves, but a practice that can help the staff develop, help our patients kind of live the life they want to be and be rewarding for everybody. And so our whole focus from starting the practice was always trying to align about having a good reason, right? So making sure that we were satisfying not only our demands and requirements, but paying attention to what the patients need and what everyone needs, particularly the community to collaborate, play well in the sandbox. And I think by kind of aligning ourselves and trying to focus on, well, how can we make things better, not just for ourselves and our practice and our patients, but for San Diego, for San Diego County, hopefully for interventional pain in general, I felt that it kind of helps to continue to push forward. And I think it also helped open a couple doors for us when we came to different insurance groups or tried to, you know, contract and let them know that, hey, this is who we're about. You know, this is a service that we want to provide. We're not necessarily trying to cannibalize everybody. We're trying to play well. If you have an established network, fantastic. If a patient may not fit into a nice little box, you know, let's, let's see what we can do for them. But I think kind of having that mantra of keep learning, you know, and build a network and then try to make things better, I think has really opened a lot of doors and created a nice collaborative environment and network for us. Well said, Dr. Rovi. Any words of wisdom, any insight for the listeners out there that you'd like to add from what Dr. Lee just beautifully shared? Yes. Reemphasizing the importance of the network. One of the things that I've come across and found challenging, at least early after graduation, was trying to find women interventional pain specialists to really connect with. Now I know there are lots of different societies that have women interest groups, and I was also able to connect with some women interventional pain physicians in the San Diego area. And even though it's not absolutely necessary, I would say, to have a female mentor as a female, I think a lot of times you feel more comfortable sometimes discussing things that may be challenging that you're experiencing. You may feel more comfortable discussing them with another female physician. Also, the female physicians may have other networks that you can tap into for support as well. I know, you know, women are more likely to experience pain, but there's a glaring lack of female interventional pain providers that are out there. So I just want to encourage any women out there thinking about entering the field and those already in the field. It's great to collaborate. It's great to meet you guys at conferences and see you giving podcasts and and talking on panels and inspiring me as a young physician as well. So I would just say network, 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 be visible if you can, and keep learning as Dr. Lee was saying. Wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Really inspiring, very you know progressive, innovative. And like you said, you're learning. We learn in this podcast. I'm sure people listening will reach out to you as well. And you're definitely making things better. So thank you for taking time out of your busy day. And thank you for sharing your words with the PSPS community. Our pleasure. Thank you, thank Dan. You. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference.